The Arctic Tern is a migratory bird. Their breeding grounds are in the far north of the planet. That includes places like Siberia and Greenland, while their wintering grounds are in locations like Melbourne or the South Island of New Zealand. One example of this bird's remarkable long-distance flying abilities involves an Arctic tern ringed as an unfledged chick on the Farne Islands of Northumberland in England. That's in the northern summer of 1982. Reached Melbourne down under over in Australia by October of 1982. Only three months from fledgling. From fledgling. That's a journey of over 22,000 kilometers or about 14,000 miles. Another example is that of a chick ringed in Labrador over in Canada on the 23rd of July in 1928. It was found in South Africa just four months later. Now, none of these birds, who, by the way, do this trip all the time, none of them had passports, visas, permits, paperwork, anything. From the UK to Australia or from Canada to South Africa, not only requires paperwork, but permission from someone known as an immigration officer. At least when you get to the airport. They examine your face, papers, and then decide if you are worthy of entry. Individ individuals who look dubious are detained and thrown back onto a plane to whence they came. And what's even more crazy is that all the people involved think that this is perfectly acceptable human behavior. Welcome to the world of international borders. If I'm that Arctic turn, I might be forgiven for not seeing a border. I might not realize I left Russia and showed up in New Zealand. Is the bird insane or is the human insane? If you go up into space, you can look down and see the planet. No lines on the land anywhere. A visitor from outer space has no clue really looking at this planet that there might be lines in the sand or in the oceans or in the mountains. But it seems to matter to the humans. People have died over borders. Some borders are so heavily fortified that you can see the fortifications from space. The alien would want to steer clear of those borders. Borders are actually geographical boundaries imposed either by geographic features such as oceans or by arbitrary groupings of political entities. Examples are governments, sovereign states, federated states, and other subnational entities like towns and cities. But how on earth are they created? Well, borders are established through things like warfare, colonization, or just simple agreements between different political entities, i.e. different countries. The creation of these agreements is called a boundary delineation. This delineation is the drawing of boundaries, particularly for precincts, countries, states, and cities. Some borders, such as most states' internal administrative borders or interstate borders, like within the EU's 
Shenzhen area, are completely open and unguarded. Most external borders are partially or totally controlled and may be crossed legally only at designated border checkpoints, and border areas are also controlled. Which means if you're a moose going from the United States to Canada, you can just walk across. But if you're a human walking from the United States to Canada, well, you kind of tend to go to the Canadian border guard, seek their permission, and hope that they'd let you in on a wing and a prayer. In the pre-modern world, the term border was rather vague and could refer to either side of a boundary. Thus, some people called it a borderline or borderland. During the medieval period, a government's control frequently diminished the further people got from the capital or a large city, henceforth borderland, especially under impassable terrain, that attracted many outcasts. There were fugitives also that lived in these borderland areas because the state had less control in them. In the past, as it is today, many borders are not clearly defined lines. Instead, there are often intervening areas often claimed and fought over by both sides, sometimes called marchlands in England. In medieval Europe, a march or a mark was in broad terms any kind of borderland as opposed to a national heartland. More specifically, a march was a border between areas or a neutral buffer zone under joint control of two states in which different laws could technically apply. In both ways, the marches served as a political purpose such as offering warning of military incursions or regulating cross-border trade. In more modern times, marshlands between some countries have been replaced by clearly defined and demarcated borders. For the purposes of border control, airports and seaports are also classed as borders. Most countries have some form of border control to regulate or limit the movement of people, animals and goods into and out of the country. Under international law, in theory, each country is generally permitted to legislate the conditions that must be met in order to cross its borders and to prevent people from crossing its borders in violation of their laws. This is considered the sovereign right of nations. Most nations try to enforce movement or to regulate it. If you'd like to go to another country, some borders require the presentation of legal documents, such as a passport or a visa, or other identification documents, for people to cross them. To remain or work within a country's borders, you, as a foreigner, may require special immigration documents or permits. But possession of such documents does not guarantee that the person should be allowed to cross the border. That depends on the immigration officer at the border. Even moving goods across a border often requires payment of something called an excise tax, often collected by someone called a customs official. Animals and even humans moving across borders may need to go into quarantine to prevent the spread of exotic infectious diseases. Most countries prohibit carrying illegal drugs or endangered animals across their borders. 
moving goods, animals or people illegally across a border without declaring them or seeking permission or intentionally dodging official inspection constitutes what governments consider smuggling. In places where smuggling, migration and infiltration are a big problem, many countries tend to strengthen their borders with fences and barriers and establish formal border control procedures. Politically, how could a border have been created? Well, it could have been agreed by the countries on both sides. It could be imposed by the country on one side over the other. It could be imposed by a third party in an international conference. It could be inherited from a former state or colonial power or aristocratic territory. It could be inherited from a former internal border. Or it may be a de facto military ceasefire line. I'm going to highlight six types of borders. Political borders, natural borders, geometric borders, lines of control, maritime borders, and airspace borders. So political borders are imposed on the world through just human agency. This means that although a political border can follow a river or a mountain range, such a feature does not automatically define the political border, although it may be a major physical barrier to crossing. Natural borders are geographical features that present natural obstacles to communication and transportation. Existing political boundaries are often formalized of such historic natural obstacles. Some geographic characteristics that often form natural boundaries include oceans, rivers, lakes, forests, mountain ranges. Throughout history, technological advances have reduced the cost of transportation and communication across the natural borders. That has reduced the significance of natural borders over a period of time. As a result, political borders that have been formalized more recently, such as those in Africa or the Americas, typically conform less to natural borders than very old borders, such as those in Europe and Asia do. What that means is that those borders look like straight lines, and they cut across villages, towns, tribes, and end up creating something called a geometric border. These are formed by straight lines, such as lines of latitude or longitude, or occasionally arcs. Regardless of the physical and cultural features of the area, such political boundaries are often found around the states that developed out of these colonial holdings. North America, Africa, and Middle East come to mind. If you think about it, the Canada-US border follows the 49th parallel for roughly 2,175 miles, that is 3,500 kilometers, from the Lake of the Woods in Ontario to the Pacific Ocean. A line of control. This refers to a militarized buffer border between two or more nations that has yet to achieve a permanent border status. Line of control or LOC borders are typically under military control and are not recognized as an official international border. Formerly known as a ceasefire line, an LOC was first created with the Shimla agreement between India and Pakistan. Maritime borders are a division enclosing an area in the ocean 
where a nation has exclusive rights over the mineral and biological resources encompassing maritime features, limits and zones. The United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, or UNCLOS, outlines internal waters as all waters within the land boundary of a country. Territorial waters are out 12 nautical miles or 22 kilometers from the baseline, i.e. the coastal state. Nations can also temporarily suspend passage in these territorial waters should they want to. Then you have something called airspace borders. These are the atmosphere located within a country's controlled international and maritime borders. That's right, it's the air above you and around you. All sovereign countries hold the right to regulate and protect airspace under the international law of air sovereignty. By international law, a state has complete and exclusive sovereignty over the airspace above its territory which corresponds with the maritime definition of territorial waters as being 12 nautical miles. Airspace not within a country's territorial limit is considered international space. That analogues with the high seas in maritime law. As I had mentioned a little earlier, borders early on were wishy-washy. Urban and civilizational life centered around these big cities with rural stuff all around them. For example, ancient Rome. Think Antioch, Rome, Constantinople, Carthage, Milan, Alexandria, and so on. The Romans would need to secure access between the cities and other cities in other provinces in Gaul or Britannia. And remember, this is important. There were simply a lot less people back in those days. So you'd have, say, a Londinium and York as Roman cities, with some other towns between the lands, but the whole area just had less people in them. Not like today. Borders were wishy-washy. No one sat around with a map drawing lines on them. Borderlands were risky business with lots of room for error. Armies could just march across. Individuals could just walk about. So what changed? How did you get from that to a hard border, like what we see between, say, Russia and Poland? What happened? Well, now that you ask, there was something called the Thirty Years' War between 1618 and 1648. Its peace treaty in 1648 was signed in Westphalia, now in Germany. That treaty is known as the Treaty of Westphalia of 1648. It brought peace to the Holy Roman Empire, closing a calamitous period in European history that, by the way, killed around 8 million people. The Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand III, the Habsburg, the Spanish monarchy, the kingdoms of France and Sweden, and the United Province, a.k.a. the Netherlands, and their respective allies among the princes of the Holy Roman Empire participate in these treaties. Lots of stuff came out of it, but importantly for us in this episode, what came out is also known as Westphalian sovereignty. Westphalian sovereignty, 
or state sovereignty is a principle within now international law that each state has exclusive sovereignty over its own territory. The principle underlines the modern international system of sovereign states and it is now enshrined in the United Nations Charter that states nothing shall authorize the United Nations to intervene in matters which are essentially within the domestic jurisdiction of any state. According to this idea, every state, no matter how large or small, had an equal right to sovereignty. This Westphalian system reached its peak in the 19th and 20th centuries in Europe and the Americas, bar, of course, European expansion outside of Europe, but that huge thing aside, it has faced recent challenges from what can be described in polite society as liberal intervention. This includes activity as extreme as, though not at all rare, like stuff like declaring war and invading countries to bring them freedom and democracy. There are also major challenges to this Westphalian idea during the Cold War. And about any war, really, that, and there were a lot of those after 1648, so there is that. But just assume that this thing is, okay, well, it's just an assumption, it's an idea. Westphalia is just an idea, nothing more. But the idea is you should be able to do what you like in, within your own borders, the Americans, Swiss, South Africans, Afghans, they all carry guns, for example. Germans, Thais, and Argentinians do not. You have your rules, we have our rules. That's about it. Do what you want, let us do what we want. And of course, a couple of things have changed in the more recent past, and I am in 2021 at this point. Number one, as I mentioned already, is liberal interventionism, where you go and kill people for freedom and democracy. And the second one is religious fundamentalism, where you go and kill people for religious reasons. In the future, maybe, you might not even need the border. Maybe you could just do a cyber attack or something silly like that, and you don't need to cross a single border. You could close a bridge or turn the electricity off of a city of your enemy without lifting a gun. You just have to lift a finger. Yet, even today, borders are open or porous. You can legally get from Spain to Italy via France without much effort. You can sometimes illegally get from El Salvador to the United States via Mexico with some effort. Other border crossings remain highly contested. India and China in the Himalayas. That border isn't well defined. When the British left India in 1947, that northern border in the Himalayas with Tibet was somewhat recognized, although still a little fuzzy. But once China took Tibet, that border became really troublesome. Then there's the India-Pakistan border up in Kashmir. Again, due to the history there, and you can listen to a prior podcast that I've done on this topic, but due to the history there, that border remains in flux with Pakistan claiming a lot of the Indian side and the Indians claiming a lot of the Pakistani side. Then there's the Pakistan-Afghanistan border. Again, undefined. So the Pashtun areas often from Afghanistan live on the Pakistan side 
And there is some confusion as to where that line is. In fact, there probably isn't a line. Then there's Israel-Palestine. Israel's borders are pretty well defined. And their enemies consider those borders encroaching entirely on their own territory. Then there's North Korea-South Korea, for example. There is something called the Demilitarized Zone, or DEZ, or DEZ, depending on where you live. That area is contested because the North thinks that the South is occupied by the US, and the South thinks that the North wants to invade them. There's, of course, that border with Ukraine and Russia. Not just the Crimea that Russia claims and has taken, but eastern Ukraine, which has a Russian-speaking population and is kind of fuzzy because they support the Russians. Then you have China in the South China Sea. China believes that it owns or controls a bunch of islands in the South China Sea, and it believes that its territory encroaches within the territorial bounds of other countries in the South China Sea. Then there's Japan and Russia, who have a contested island. Taiwan itself is contested. China, mainland China, claims Taiwan as its own, whereas Taiwan thinks it's its own country. The United Kingdom has a claim to something called the Falkland Islands in the South Pacific, very close to the South Pole, and also very close to Argentina, who also claim the same islands. The UK and Argentina went to war over these islands in 1983. That's just a few examples. It's quite a lot, but that's just a few of them. Borders and countries are imagined communities. There is no such thing in nature. It is in our minds. So to create a country, you must do what is known in government circles as protect, enforce, or monitor the border. Elaborate systems can be put in place where there is no physical natural border, such as a wall, a checkpoint, barbed fences, policing, and so on. The more contested a border, the bigger the presence. Borders that may or may not be fuzzy on the ground might be shown as a line on a map of the world. You have seen it. Sometimes Kashmir is dotted lines between India and Pakistan. A map in Pakistan may show it entirely in Pakistan, whereas a map in India will show Jammu and Kashmir entirely in India. The BBC or a third party shows the entire region, including the various lines of controls, as dotted or uncertain territories. My absolute favourite border crossing is India-Pakistan. It is a highly contested border. They distrust each other and they share a border where in some parts it is contested, especially up in the Siachen Glacier in Kashmir. In the state of Punjab in India, at Wagha, on both the Indian and Pakistani sides, is a crossing with an elaborate ceremony. Your video provider of choice will have footage. It is worth a visit. It's called the Lowering of the Flags Ceremony and is a daily military practice that the security forces of India, the Border Security Force or BSF, and Pakistan, the Pakistan Rangers, have jointly followed since 1959. This drill is characterized by elaborate and rapid dance-like maneuvers and raising legs as high as possible and is colorful. It is alternatively a symbol of the two countries' rivalries as well as brotherhood and cooperation between nations. 
the pomp and pageantry of beating retreat and change of guard occur within handshaking distance of the Indian and Pakistani forces. The ceremony takes place every evening immediately before sunset. The ceremony starts with a blustering parade by the soldiers from both sides and ends up in the perfectly coordinated lowering of the two nations' flags. This beating the retreat border ceremony on the international level is phenomenal. One infantry soldier stands at attention on each side of the gate. As the sun sets, the iron gates at the border are opened and the two flags are lowered simultaneously. The flags are folded and the ceremony ends with a retreat that involves a brisk handshake between soldiers from either side, followed by the closing of the gates again. The spectacle of the ceremony attracts so many visitors from both sides of the border as well as international tourists. It's a must-watch. But there you have it. The country you live in is a figment of your imagination and your borders were cooked up for a myriad of reasons but mostly because of the treaty at Westphalia and that only because of European empires and colonialism. This was an odd idea that just got across the world because of the Europeans. And now you live and you die by it. You have been listening to the Alternative History Podcast. Thank you for your time. Please, please, please do recommend the show to your friends. Thank you so very much. <laughs>